Exodus chapter 20, we're coming to the commandments, and it's a familiar chapter. Let's just unite our heart in a short word of prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we thank Thee for Thy presence. We thank the Lord for these hymns of Zion. And, O God, we praise Thee for the one who is immortal, invisible, the only wise God. Pray, Lord, that Thou would bring us into this passage. Lord, that Thou would help us to be, as a were, part of the great gathering of the nation of Israel as they assemble at the foot of the mount. And, oh, that Thou would, Lord, help us to be truly awestruck of what we read here. And Lord, that I would give us understanding in these verses. And Lord, I would apply the word to each and every heart. Bless us, Lord, to that end. Give us, Lord, words from thyself that must and shall prevail. Give us those prevailing words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's really impossible to overstate the importance of the moral law of God. It reveals the character of God, but also in the way in which it is given. It has been given, communicated in the, in the shortest of spaces and in flawless language. Moses, men and women, did not receive these laws from the cultures that were round about him. Now, he would have been well-versed, for example, with the laws to do with Egypt. He was brought up in the palace for that time. But the giving of the law was an unparalleled one. For amidst the thunderings and the lightnings and the quakings of Mount Sinai, the Lord God came down. And the Lord gave the ten words. The beginning of this chapter indicates that God spake all these words. It is the very word of the very God, as the rest of the scriptures, of course, are, who not only spake them, but also was to write them with his finger upon the tablets of stone. The law is our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. What does that mean? It means that it points us to the Lord. Because when the Lord came, he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. We cannot be saved by the observance of the law, because if we have failed in one point, we have failed in them all. But it is a rule to direct us in living lives that will bring glory to God. I want you to understand that the moral law of God was already in existence from the beginning. Now you think of Adam, and Adam was to love the Lord his God with all his heart above Eve or above anything else. And even at his creation, Adam received the Sabbath law. For you remember, he was created out of the dust of the ground on the sixth day. He's the very climax of God's creation. And the first full day he had on earth was the Sabbath, where God rested from all his labors. Man was aware of the laws against adultery, against murder, against idolatry, etc., even though there was no written word. But as the thousands of the nation of Israel gathered at the foot of Sinai, it was then that they heard the voice of the Lord giving even the Ten Commandments. And in this manner, God was indelibly impressing his law upon the consciences of his people. And by writing them on the tables of stone, he was bearing witness that the law was forever. When you turn back, turn over, I should say, to Ecclesiastes, 
just by the, the middle of the Scriptures, Ecclesiastes, the chapter 12. And you just read with me the last two verses of that book. For it says there, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Now today, I've read those verses because today there are many who have a loose view of God's law and of God's judgment. And they'll say, oh, we can, we can live whatever way we're like. We're not under the law, we're under grace. That's taken out of context, of course. The last days will be marked by lawlessness. Where before people had a respect for God and His laws, that has now been seriously undermined. And where there's no respect and where there's no restraint in the minds and hearts of many, the outworking of that, the practice of that is uh, sinning openly. And so, naturally, there's the breakdown in the family unit. There's the increase in violence and all the crimes of the day. Murder, theft, lies, and so we could go on. Because there's no respect to God or His law. The distinguishing mark of the believer, how he is, is the very opposite. It's a holy living. And when we stand before God and the books will be opened, is it not conceivable that the first book that will be opened will be the book of God's law? And then follows the opening of the book of each person's life. And unless the Lord finds in that person who stands before him an absolute righteousness and a perfection with which there is no fault, his law will call for their destruction. The sinner is placed on the scales of strict justice. The standard against which they will be weighed will be as unchangeable and holy law of God. And men and women, we're all guilty we can only stand faultless and guiltless on that great day if we are in Christ. Because he perfectly fulfilled the law on the behalf of his people. The sinner outside of Christ, without his spotless righteousness, will be found weighed in the balances and found wanting. I trust I have imparted to you the importance of the, law, the moral law of God. And you should bear in mind that it is not only found in Exodus 20, it is repeated in Deuteronomy as well. That shows you how important it is. And so while the civil laws that were given or the ceremonial laws that were given to Israel are now done away with, the moral law doesn't be done away with. It's still in vogue. So, with that in mind, I want you to uh, come with us even into the, some of these verses. We're not going to get to verse 11 to where we read this morning. But I want you to notice, firstly, the arrangement of the commandments. For having revealed to Israel the preparation that was needed to meet with the Lord God, preparation, I trust, that underlined in your heart and in your mind the holiness of God. Remember, they weren't to come near the, the foot of the mount, etc. They were to uh, prepare themselves uh, by abstaining from sin in the days previous. Uh, and all of that was underlining the holiness of God and was impressed upon Moses when God met with him at the burning bush. For you remember there, he was told to take his shoes from off his feet for the ground, the place whereon they stand us, is holy ground. He was meeting with God in the bush. 
But having stressed the holiness of God, they also stress that a holy God requires a holy people. Something that is expressed right throughout the scriptures by a very short sentence. Be ye holy, for I am holy. But having gathered the people to the foot of the mount, the Lord emphasizes what he had done for them, and he emphasizes his authority. That's what we read in the words of verse 2, and we made reference to it last time around. It's the same God who had redeemed them. By the blood of the Lamb. It's the same God that had brought them out of the house of bondage out of Egypt. Across the Red Sea and dry ground. Now it's the same God that speaks all all these words unto them. The reason why we ought to keep these commandments is the same today. They have the authority of Almighty God behind them. And it's the same God who has redeemed us. Redeemed us through the blood of his Passover lamb, even the Lord Jesus Christ. But do note that the commandments can only begin at one place. They can only begin with God himself. He begins to present to the people the obligations that their relationships with him entails. There's none like unto God. He is sovereign above all others. And God says... Because he is Lord, because he has created us, because he has redeemed us, if we are his people, then this is the way in which we should live. The Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, as they're also known, can be divided into two categories. Neatly symbolized by the writing of them on the two tablets of stone. The first four speak of man's relationship to God. The latter six speak of man's relationship with man. Or the first four concern our responsibility, God words. The others, our responsibility, man words. You know, the Savior himself was to divide the commandments into those categories. You come to Matthew chapter 22, and you'll see there an answer to the question that was put to him. Look at verse 37. One of them asked a question, verse 35, tempting him. I think you should underline that. Wasn't that he wanted to know, really? He's trying to trip up the Savior. Master, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus said unto him, verse 37, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. There's the first tablet of stone. There's the first category. And then the second corresponds to the second tablet of stone, the other six, verse uh, 39. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the laws and the prophets. So the Savior himself was to put them into those two categories. It should be noted that many of the commandments are spoken in the negative. There's only two that aren't. In other words, what I'm saying is, verse 3, Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. That is repeated eight times. I bring that out, minimum, because the worldview today is that we shouldn't express negatives. It's frowned upon now to tell a child that they haven't done something right. And nobody is allowed to fail these days. Only some do better than some others. That's the worldview that is found in your schools. Everything is to be positive. 
And you know that spirit is carried sometimes into the church fellowship, into the congregation. Because the preacher is not liked if he preaches against sin. Or if he preaches against God's judgment. Or if he happens to preach against hell, or about hell. Well, whether you like to hear a negative message or not, God puts plenty of them into the Ten Commandments because they're so necessary. You consider also that while other laws and statutes were conveyed to the nation through Moses, God proclaimed these Ten Commandments to Israel directly by His voice. Look at verse 22. We didn't read it, but the same chapter we're in, and it says... And the Lord said unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, Ye have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Oh, here it is again. Look at the verse 4. The Lord talked with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of the fire. Verse 22 of that chapter. These words the Lord spake unto all your assembly in the mount out of the midst of the fire of the cloud of the thick darkness with a great voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them in two tables of stone and delivered them unto me. Men and women, that he did so in such a dramatic fashion, it surely emphasizes to us the primary importance and position that the Ten Commandments hold among all the other statutes. God spake these by his very voice so that the children and the nation of Israel heard them. And they have never been repealed, as I've said already. They still hold as important to the people of God today. Not that we're saved by them, but by, their, by our fruits we shall be known. We seek to use them as a guide in how to walk in our life to bring glory to the Lord. There's the arrangement. Let me show you the priority of the commandments here, because everything begins with God. And that is where the commandments begin. It is with a priority of worship unto a holy God. What does God require in the first commandment? Verse 3, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It is our exclusive and our zealous worship, meaning that the worship of any other gods breaks the commandment. You'll notice that the first commandment is found in the second person singular. Now, God doesn't generalize these commandments. But rather, he would have each and every one of us to understand that these are spoken to you and to me as if by name. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And this opening command enforces the truth that there is but one true and living God. Or we read it in Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 22. I am God and beside thee there is none else. That is the constant testimony of the Scriptures. I'm going to the book of Deuteronomy again. Chapter 6, verse 4, verse 5. 3 and 4 of Deuteronomy 6 is very important to the Jew, even to this very day. I brought it out in Bible class one morning. You see them uh, where they have the little box on their forehead or maybe lapped around their forearm. 
Well, the piece of Scripture in that little box called the phylactery is Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 3 and 4. It's called the Shema. It means to hear. And the word is there, verse 3, here, therefore. But look at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And that's the constant testimony of the Scriptures. There's one true God. In Exodus chapter 15 and verse 11, Moses was to express the same truth. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Remember, of course, that Israel were brought out of the house of bondage, out of Egypt, and Egypt was full of false gods and religions. Polytheism. And Moses is underlining to him, there's only but one true and living God. And you know, dear people, what is taught in the Old Testament is again repeated when we come to the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4, the words of verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And Paul was to remind Timothy he of the same truth as he wrote to him as the pastor in Ephesus. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Now unto the keen eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So what we were singing about in our, our hymn earlier on. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It is the constant testimony right throughout the Scriptures. The united testimony of the Word of God, therefore, is that there is but one Creator. There is one Upholder. There is one Ruler. There's one Savior. And in contrast to that, other gods are but those of man's imagination. Psalm 115, uh, you don't need to turn to it, uh, just to give you a reference in verse 4, it says this, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. There's false gods. The work of men's hands. You see, the Bible reminds us that an idol is nothing. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have hands, but they cannot touch. They have ears, but they cannot hear. I've said to you in our visit to Nepal, we were brought to one of the, the temples. And there, the, the, the Hindu uh, has Baal all around him. And there's a wee notice, don't sit in Baal. Baal's a big statue in the middle of this temple area. Outside it is. And you might damage Baal. That's false gods, men and women. That's something that has eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear. And there's no intimacy with the, the, their followers. The idol is nothing. Paganism is, with its many gods, obviously breaking this command of the Lord. Many are enslaved. Many poor, unsuspecting soul is enslaved with False gods today. But I want you to understand something. Understand that we don't have to have an idol in the corner to bow down before in order to violate this command of the Lord. Oh, there might be some and you would say, Preacher, I, I believe what that verse says. I, I believe there's only one Lord God. I don't break that commandment. Do you not? 
You see, understand anything in our life that takes priority over God becomes an idol. That might be endeavoring to climb the career ladder. That might be a sports team. That might be making money. That might be a quest for popularity. It might be someone else. It might even be the concept of what we have about ourselves. Social media and all selfies and all the rest of it. I confess to you, I'm not into that much. But you know what I've observed through my little viewing? These pictures and selfies that are taken, you never see women taking a picture of themselves at 8 o'clock in the morning, crawling out of bed with her hair everywhere. And the face is not on and all the rest of it. It's always glamour. And there are people who, I no doubt, that's their image. And they want to get that image out. And they make a god of that. Of what other people think about them and look upon them and all the rest of it. And men and women, whatever. And I've only given a little summary there of maybe some things. But if those things take the place of the Lord God, we have made them a God. Yeah. God says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That could be stated if I can turn it around. Thou shalt worship exclusively only me. This commandment comes first because it takes priority over everything else. If you don't have God in the proper position in our heart, then we cannot view the other commandments correctly either. There are to be no rivals in our heart. It is to be God first and foremost in our worship and in our devotion. We're to put the Lord first in our lives as the exhortation of Matthew 6 and 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. How are we doing? To keep this commandment, then we must strive to see everything from God's point of view. We have to think and act biblically. We take God's moral will, our guide. We take it as glory, our goal. He is to be first in our thoughts, in our relationships, in our workplace, in our leisure, in our homes. The hymn writer sums it up well. The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, Help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. That's a good summary. And if this commandment received the respect that it deserves, then obedience to the other nine commandments would follow as a matter of course. Just remember now that anything that usurps the rightful place of God in the thoughts thoughts and in affections of the heart is violating what God demands in this first commandment. And I suggest to you that we we can easily break it. I want you to remember that the saints of God can break this commandment. And that's why there's an exhortation in 1 John 5 and 21. It says simply this, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. John's addressing the people of God there. Keep yourselves from idols. Let's move on. I want you to see the practice of, That is found in the commandment. I I draw your attention to verse 4 and 5. 
You see, there's a correlation between the first and the second commandments. They are separate commands. They're different commandments. Not as the church of Rome has done. What does the church of Rome do, you say? Well, the church of Rome takes, ver- takes the commandment one and takes the commandment two and puts it into one for obvious reasons, for their own convenience. And then they divide number ten so that they get ten commandments. But there are two separate commandments in view here that God has spoken. The first commandment deals with the object of worship. We are to worship God and Him only. The second commandment deals with how we are to worship God. There's the practice. We are to worship God not by images. Remember what the Lord taught the woman by the well in John chapter 4. God is a spirit, therefore not a graven image. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We worship by faith, not by images. Images appeals to the flesh. You'll see that there is indeed a threefold uh, restriction here in the second commandment. First of all, it forbids making any graven image. Second of all, it forbids bowing down before them. Thirdly, it forbids serving them. Simple. And so you'll notice there that worship and service go together. And of course, the Lord answered that or brought that out in his answer uh, as he was tempted by the devil. Matthew chapter 4, and the words of verse 10 says, Then said Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. So worship and service go together. We serve what we worship. We serve what we worship. What do you worship? But you will know that the devil is subtle. And we're not to be ignorant of his devices. If he cannot stop us worshiping the only true God, then he will seek to defile our worship of God by various methods. And this is where the objections are often heard. You see, the cry might be along the lines, well... The images help me to worship God. Why this is so important a matter is because images dishonor the Lord. They dishonor God because they obscure His glory. God is above any material representation. And physical material is less than God. And so God is dishonored by bringing His glory down to a greatly inferior level. That is what happened when Aaron was persuaded to fashion that golden calf that they might worship while Moses met with God in Mount Sinai. I believe it is conversely other argument in the New Testament. That is why, in one sense, God darkened Calvary for those hours. There is never going to be any true representation of what Christ looked like on that cross because it couldn't be seen. Any art of that nature fails. Fails. Fails, obviously, because any pictures I've seen of that always find the, the, the head of Christ sunk into his chest. And we know that's not scripturally true. He bowed his head, he gave up the ghost. 
All through these images are not only dishonoring to God, but they're misleading. And so they are not only inadequate, but they're harmful. They cause distortions of the mind. That's why I don't expect ever any children's worker in Market Hill Free Church to ever use pictures of Christ in teaching the children. There's no need for it. Now, other companies, of course, will bring these materials out and so forth, and there's a way around those things. We don't use them. And we certainly cover up any images that there might be of Christ found in such books. But we do not use images of the Lord to teach the children. You just consider this very time as Moses looks back on it from the viewpoint of Deuteronomy. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15. And remember, he's, it's 40 years later and he's reviewing Exodus 20 in a, in a sense. He says, Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves. For ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image. The similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged fowl that flieth in the air, the likeness of anything that creepeth on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the waters beneath the earth. And lest thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven, shouldst be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. And he's, what he's saying is, in case you missed it in Exodus chapter 19, that when God revealed himself upon Mount Sinai, he didn't appear in any physical form. He didn't appear in any material form or shape that man could replicate. He was hidden, veiled beneath the cloud and the smoke and the lightning and the thunders, etc. God forbids any representation of himself. There is to be no human art employed in our worship. In the Old Testament, for example, no truth, no tool. Exodus 20, the very chapter we're in, no tool was to be used in the setting up of the altar. Look at verse 23. You shall not make me gods of silver, neither shall ye make unto you gods of gold. Verse 25, And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone. For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. The stonemasons weren't allowed to go and grave an image out of stone. Because by doing so, they had lifted a tool. They had defiled the very image itself. The use of the tool of man meant the introduction of human art or skill in making approach unto God. And that meant a pollution of the worship of God. And as in the Old Testament, it's clear in this demarcation of such practice, so the New Testament is likewise. Paul, he was to give a warning to the Gentile believers in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 10. And you know, he brings them back to where we have been looking at. Oh, the nation of Israel going through the wilderness. You look at verse 7. He says, Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. 
As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. There's a time around the golden calf. Verse 14. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. He's right into the church. Right into the people of God. In the context of those scriptures, if we took time further to look at them, the believers were instructed to not even partake of meat, which had knowingly been offered to idols. Even that level of involvement with idols was forbidden in the New Testament church. And all forms of worship which originated with the divine revelation, but with man's inventiveness, was idolatry. I think it's obvious, men and women, that here is a sin which man by nature is inclined towards. Making graven images. Making representations of the Lord. And that being so, the Puritan Thomas Watson's advice is worthy of our attention. Some of you might have heard of Thomas Watson. He has done a book on the Lord's Prayer, for example, on, on the commandments, things like that. Just listen to what he says here. Here's advice. He says, To avoid all occasion of, of this sin, one, desist from keeping company with idolatrous papists. He said, don't live under the same roof of them as you run into the devil's mouth. He's not missing the mark here. Number two, don't go into their chapels to see their crucifixes or hear mass. To do so will invariably mean seeing their images and you are then drawn to idolatry. That's why the Church of Rome brings one and two together. They can't really uh, hold the second commandment because their mass houses are full of images. And Watson says, don't go into the mass houses. How many today don't seem to have a problem when going into the mass house? Well, I do. More importantly, God does. If you want to show respect to a neighbor that has passed away of a Roman Catholic community, you don't have to go to the funeral in the mass house. You can visit their homes as I have often done. There's the images in there. There's the blasphemy of putting a fresh Christ to the cross. And the brethren that have the orange collarette around their neck, remember that? Doesn't seem to be a problem now within the orange order to go into the mass house, but that's wrote in your constitutions. Not to do it. Three, dare not to join in marriage with image worshippers. Solomon was a man of wisdom, but his idolatrous wives drew away his heart from God. And four, avoid superstition. For it is bringing any ceremony, fancy, or innovation into God's worship, which he never ordained or appointed. Take heed of all occasions of idolatry, for idolatry is devil worship. As I said, Thomas Watson doesn't miss the mark. Psalm 106, the words of verse 36. They served their idols which were a snare unto them. Yea, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils. That's why Watson says idolatry is devil worship. 
Dear people, throughout the Bible, there is not one sin that God has followed more with plagues of judgment than idolatry. He's a jealous God. He will not share the worship with any other. We're not to be spiritual adulterers. And that retribution is noted even in the commandment. Look at verse 5. I shall not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. God visiting his judgment upon the children of those who break this commandment. What a fearful threat that is. You see, it's a most serious thing. And here's what people miss today. The end of verse 5. It's a most serious thing to hate God. Because that's what you're doing. But bless God, there's also the recompense for those who do obey the command. Verse 6, And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. The promise is for those who obey that God will cause mercy to be extended to thousands of those who love him. As long as his worship is kept pure, then he has promised to show favor from one generation unto the next. Oh, we might not always see the recompense in this earth, but what glory and blessing it will be for God's own people for all eternity. And you know the men and women, the order might help us in this. You see verse 6 again. Love comes before keeping or obeying. Showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep. Love comes first. If you have a problem, if we have a problem obeying God's command, it shows us, first of all, there's a problem with our love toward God. Plenty can talk about loving God, but they don't seem to show it in their walk as they live in a constant state of disobedience. May God help us to love and obey. May the Lord ever keep this church from having as its goal a user-friendly religion by adopting new methods. That's just bringing man's innovation in. Because when that happens, then there's a pleasing of men taking priority over pleasing God. And Paul, the apostle, writes about that in Galatians chapter 1. But we desire to worship God in the simplicity of biblical worship. Preaching Christ. Uplifting the Savior as the only hope for sinful mankind. If you're not saved this morning, we point you to Him. Don't point you to the law because you've broken it. You've fallen in Adam as every one of us have. But we point you to the one who fulfilled it. Perfectly. And who died as the only Redeemer shed His precious blood on Calvary's cross. And it's only in Christ that you can keep these words. The Lord help us to do so. The Lord bless his word to each of our hearts this morning for his own name's sake. 494, we'll sing just in closing, 494. Or Jesus, I long to be perfectly whole. I want thee forever to live in my soul. Break down every idol. Cast out every foe. Now wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. We'll sing uh, verses 1.
and five. One and five, 494. Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We bless Thee, Lord, that God spake all these words. Lord, we pray that we might be those who do desire to keep Thy commandments and to fear God. We pray, Lord, that Lord, there will be none that will usurp the place, the throne of God in our hearts. We ask, Lord, that Thou would help us. We thank the Lord in Christ we have perfection. Oh, we're not perfect down here. But, oh God, we thank thee when you see us, you see us in Christ's blood. And he kept the law of God perfectly in our behalf. Lord, teach us. Wash us afresh in the crimson blood. Lord, we pray that we might be those that are pleasing in thy sight. And our worship, our worship, Lord, we count important. Lord, we pray it might be ever pleasing with thee. Teach us, Lord, we pray. Bless any that's unsaved. Oh, God, we point them yet to Christ. Pray even this morning, I will do that work of grace in some heart. Part us now with thy blessing. Give us a good Sabbath, Lord. Bring us back even in thy will tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.